I think we lost all the kids or are losing them. Good morning and happy Mother's Day. I love it when you say good morning back. I, Mother's Day is a, a day that we celebrate moms. Um, it has been acknowledged we all have them. Uh, it is a great, great gift that has been given to us, somebody who brought us into the world. And at the same time, I think we need to recognize that Mother's Day is not often the easiest day for some. There, there are some people who actually dread Mother's Day. Uh, I, I've been, in, through the years of my life, I found a number of people who actually don't come to church intentionally on Mother's Day because of the tension it causes them. You, you know, as you walk through life, you start gaining experiences, and those experiences start to flavor how you walk. Um, in 1994, I was a college student, uh, and my mother passed away. It was interesting when you, how that moment changed my life. Um, losing my mom just changed everything for me. It was the hardest thing I ever went through. And immediately, I started loathing Mother's Day. In fact, I was a youth pastor in Dallas, and I had two guys who'd also lost their moms. And we actually would skip church sometimes. And we'd go to this Mother's Day breakfast before all the other moms showed up. And that was kind of our tribute to our moms. So you just kind of want to acknowledge the fact that on a day like Mother's Day, there's some of you who are exceptionally giddy about being a mom. And there's some of you that are exceptionally excited about being a grandmother. But there are also people here this morning who are mourning. Mourning the loss of a mother. Or mourning the loss of uh, a miscarriage. Or infertility. Or or desperately wanting to be in in a marriage relationship so you can have your own kids. This day can cause tension for lots of people. And we just want to acknowledge that too. We are so thankful that you've come to worship with us this morning. And that you've come to be a part of a service that's going to uplift Jesus. Uh, This week I was reading and um, Kevin DeYoung tweeted earlier in the week. He said, you know, the best way to honor mom on Mother's Day is to preach the gospel. And it was interesting because it was followed by some statements. It said something like, on Mother's Day would be the great day for a child to give their life to Christ. It'd be the sweetest gift to a mom. But you know, the other gift that could be given is, uh, it's a great day for a mom to come to know the Lord. What a sweet gift for her kids. It's a sweet gift as we celebrate Mother's Day. Well, regardless of your experience with your mom, whether she was outstanding or a challenge, Um, you find on this day we celebrate them. On this day we celebrate our moms. Um, I'm trying not to be emotional is what I'm trying not to do right now. I knew it would be hard for me to talk about Mother's Day because I've always struggled with it. So there you go. Well, this morning we are walking back into the book of Jude. Uh, Jude 5 through 16. As you heard the text read this morning, you had to think to yourself, what an incredibly weird passage for Mother's Day. What a strange passage for Mother's Day. Is he seriously going to talk about judgment and hell on Mother's Day? Are you kidding me? And the answer is, yes, I am. Because it's a funny tension when we think about our moms. Because what you find in a really good mother is a mother who balances love and discipline. See, some of you could have had a mom who is all love and no discipline, and that did not do you any favors in life. And some of you could have grown up with a mom who's all discipline and no love, and that didn't do you any favors either. And it's interesting how we place a perspective on God that we want to see him in that same light. 
We want to project that onto God, that God is either all-loving, I can do anything I want, I can participate in anything I want, he'll forgive me for all that I've done, it doesn't matter, or we take on a position that God is all-discipline. He doesn't like me. I can't meet up to his standards. I could never do anything to meet up to what he wants from me. How will I ever equate my lifestyle to to make him happy? And you find that both of those perspectives are not the God of the Bible. Thank you for a glass of water. Well, as we've walked through the book of Jude, and we're going to keep walking through it, when you come to 5 and 6, Jude is going to start to challenge these false witnesses, these people who give a false testimony in Jesus. He's going to start to challenge that in verse 5. But when you get to verse 5, you've got to recognize that verse 5 is verse 5 and not verse 1. We're in the middle of a story here. Judas is giving you a message, and it doesn't just start here. It starts in verse 1, where Jude identifies himself as a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, who were called, beloved, and God the Father, and kept for Jesus. And you immediately find if you're going to be one who's going to contend for the gospel, the initial thing you've got to do is find your identity in Jesus Christ. To find yourself owned by Jesus Christ as Jude did. And to understand that your identity is one who's been called, loved, and kept. And and when you own that and you start understanding that you're one who's been called by God the Father, that before time began, he picked you. And what that means is you can't do anything to earn his love. You can't do anything bad. You can't do anything good in order to make him like you more or less because he picked you long before you had the chance to do it. And he loves you. You're his beloved. He understands you're a sinner. He created you. He knows everything about you. And yet he still loves you with this enormous deep love and he's keeping you for Jesus Christ. That you're going to be kept He's going to keep giving you everything you need so that you're not lost. And we'll follow that theme all the way through the end of the book. May love, mercy, and peace be given to you. And then he gives you the challenge in verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to, to write appealing you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. That he wanted to write to them and say, man, isn't it awesome what Jesus did at the cross for us that we could be saved? Isn't it incredible this salvation that we have? And he wanted to glory in our salvation. But he said, instead, I got to write to you and I got to challenge you to contend for the gospel. I got to challenge you. I got to urge you. I got to plead with you to contend for the gospel. Now, we've joked about it because several people have come up commenting that they didn't know what contend meant. And hopefully I resolved that for you last week. Contending for the gospel is, it's almost like a wrestling match. It's this very active word. It's it's fighting strongly for. In fact, J.B. Phillips, who translated the Bible in a contemporary way, way before Eugene Peterson did, in the 50s, translated it this way. He said it's to put up a real fight for the gospel. And Eugene Peterson in the message came back and said, it's to fight with everything you've got. It's to contend for the gospel. And then we defined it to make your life a life that that demonstrates the gospel and a life that proclaims the gospel. That that's what contending for the gospel means. It's to live out a life that demonstrates the reality of who Jesus Christ is and what he did at the cross and to also proclaim it. So we're living it out and we're speaking it. 
We're doing both. They're held together. And he says in verse 4 why this is important. He says, because there's false teachers and there's false witnesses. People who live without authority. People who pervert the grace of God with sensuality. And people who deny the master. We live in a culture and a context not far from the one that Jude lived in. Where people claim the name of Jesus and don't live up to it. Don't live a life that reflects the glory of our Lord. Don't proclaim it. And so when we look at what the world thinks of the church, they have a very perverted view of us because of the testimony that oftentimes we are given. That we are giving. That the church oftentimes puts out a testimony that doesn't equate to what Jesus did at the cross. That doesn't say with any sense of power who he is and what he did. And so Judah's trying to challenge us in that. And so he comes to verse 5. Now he's going to get real real about judgment. And he's going to get real real about hell. Now the interesting thing about both of those terms is they don't make anyone comfortable at all. There's nobody who got excited like, I think Pastor Ben's going to talk about hell this week. Yes. In fact... Francis Chan, who's written four or five, he's written five books. Two of them have been really well received by the church. Wrote a book called Crazy, or wrote a book called Crazy Love. If you look on Amazon.com, it is the, of all the books that Amazon has ever sold, it is currently ranked 922nd all time in the books they've sold. That's actually, for a Christian book, pretty phenomenal. Well, he also wrote a book called Erasing Hell. You know how many people have bought this one? We love crazy love. Man, we love hearing about the outrageous love that God has for us. We are big, 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 huge fans of that. When he writes a book called Erasing Hell, nobody buys it. And in fact, crazy love is 922nd, um, for Scott's sake. Forgotten God is at 1640th place. His newest book, Multiplies, 4092nd place. This book, out of Amazon's bestselling, is in 35,000th place. There are 34,900 some books that are selling better than this one. Why? Because we're not interested in judgment or hell. We're not interested in the idea of discipline or accountability. We're terrified of it. And the interesting thing that, that, that Francis Chan writes about this book, it's the same way I feel about this message. He goes, I was not excited to write this book, but it's necessary. I, I'm not excited to preach this message. But, but it's necessary. We need to have this very balanced perspective of God. We need to hold God rightly. Because as he presents himself in scripture, he is equally loving. And he equally holds people with discipline and accountability. He, he loves us in this perfect way. But he holds us tremendously accountable. And, and if you were to read this book from cover to cover, even if you just wanted to focus on the New Testament you'd find that it's not devoid of discussions of, of the end times or of judgment. And in fact, if you were to even read through Matthew 25, and, and, and that would be a great homework assignment to walk away from this message and to consider. Matthew 25, there are three parables in it, but most of them get to the fact that we're not prepared for the end. And the last one, the sheep and the goats, really challenges the fact that there are going to be a lot of people in the church when they show up in eternity, you're going to be like, Lord, here I am. 
And he's going, I don't know who you are. And that's going to be shocking to some of us. So we got to talk about it. We got to dig into the reality of it because it's the most fair, loving thing we can do. So when Jude is challenging this church, when he's challenging you, he starts with telling you who you are in Christ. He starts with challenging you to present a a pure testimony of who Christ is. Now he's going to warn you. He's going to put strong warnings out to false teachers and false witnesses. Because you'll find that most of these judgment passages in the New Testament are not written to unbelievers. They're written as warnings to believers. So we'll take it as a warning to believers. So in five, he starts this way. He gives you three illustrations of false witnesses from pretty much from the history of Israel. In verse five, he says, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. Now I'll give you these passages if you want to go back and and look at them. This, this shows up in, in Numbers 14. You, you find that, that God, and, and of course the Bible is now saying this, Jesus sent them out. Jesus did the work. When, when they left Egypt and they left slavery and they, they find themselves grumbling in the desert, unbelieving in the desert, yet God is trying to take them to this promised land, and yet they did not believe in him. So what happened? God let them die in the desert. Now, why is that significant? Because what Jude is going to start putting out before us is this idea that God keeps his word. He, he doesn't just say, hey, I'm going to do this, and then not. You know, I, I struggle sometimes as a parent to look at my son, who's fortunately not in the room anymore, and say, Pierce, if you don't do that, you're going to get a spanking. And then you kind of go, well, I'd have to get off of the couch, and that's a lot of work, and I'd have to chase him. Okay, if you do it again... You know, if, you, if you've been a parent for long, that kind of inconsistent parenting isn't very good. Um, God's not that way. He is a much better daddy than I am. He's, he wants you to know consistently that he's going to hold you accountable as he held them accountable. In fact, you could ask the question of all the people who wandered into the wilderness of that generation, how many made it out? Would have been a good Bible quiz of the day. And the answer was two. There we go. Joshua and Caleb, because they believed. And verse 6, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment on that great day. Okay, now we're going to run into two, we're going to run into two really interesting texts. This is a challenging text for anyone to teach. Uh, and so you got to just, let's just start here. I'm going to make two quick acknowledgments. Okay, in this book, Judah's going to quote two different books. Two different books that are not in the Bible. I mean, that's just crazy. Why would a guy quote a non-biblical book who's in the Bible? What do you do with that? Well, I think the answer when Jude starts quoting first Enoch is to say that clearly first Enoch is not the inspired word of God, but it's clearly not heresy either. Whatever Enoch happened to write, Jude is affirming here is truth. Because he's going to turn around later in this, he's going to quote the book that most of you have your devotions in, the book of Assumptions of Moses. I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with that. And he's going to go back to that book as well. So we're going to have two different non-canonical kind of discussion points. So when he comes to his, he's quoting the book of First Enoch. 
The angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness into the judgment of that great day. It's funny, this passage is repeated in 2 Peter 2. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment. God is saying if, if he was consistent with the angels, the glorious angels, those which were created to worship him, if when they fell, he held them accountable, how much more so will he not hold you accountable? Verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires, served in his example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Find it in Genesis 19. God held that city accountable. He warned them, tried not to burn it down, and then ultimately punished it with a fire. Happy Mother's Day, by the way. Man, Sodom and Gomorrah on Mother's Day. Must be a rookie pastor. <laughs> Jude gives three examples where he wants you to see through Scripture that God is consistent. He's consistent in, in holding people accountable. He was consistent with the nation of Israel. He was consistent with the angels. And he was consistent with the, with the unbelievers in Sodom and Gomorrah. He's consistent in his judgment of believers. He's consistent in his judgment of unbelievers. He's consistent all the time because it's who he is. Now Jude, in verse 8, starts taking an aim. Having looked historically at, at these different things and trying to lay out a case for the consistency of God. In verse 8, he says, of the, talking about the actions of these false witnesses, these people who are giving a false testimony of who God is. He says, yet in like manner, these people like those others, like the Sodom and Gomorrahites, like in a like manner, these people also rely on their own dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. So what does that say? What Judah's articulating is that these people have their own authority, that they rely on their own dreams. That's where he starts. That, that their authority isn't the God of the Bible. It's not the God of Scripture. They don't have a basis of which to say, this is what I believe and this is why. Now, I'll tell you, in, in 15 years of doing full-time ministry, one of the most interesting facets to me is when you get into a theological discussion with somebody. Because often when I get into theological conversations with people, people start with a a statement. And the most common statement that people start theological conversations with is, I feel. Well, I feel that. Well, I, I just feel that. Okay, if we're going to have a theo, God, logical study of conversation, we should start it with him, not you. Sometimes, and I, I don't want to offend it. I do want to offend some of you. It doesn't matter what you feel. Your feelings aren't trustworthy. The Bible says over and over, your heart is wicked. Why do you think your feelings are trustworthy? You can't base your life on your feelings. You have to base your life on truth. And where do you get truth? God's word. It's what we've got. And that's, what he's, that's his argument about these people, that they rely on their dreams. They sit around and they establish, but you know, I, I just feel, my God would never do that. 
My God would never hold somebody. My, my God would never say that. My God can't say no to anybody. My God wants us all to be happy. My God wants us all to be comfortable. My God really, really wants me to drive a Lamborghini. I don't understand why I'm not. You, you start to see what's happening here. They defile the flesh. It's an immodesty statement. It's a, I indulge in the flesh statement. In fact, the NIV says they pollute their own bodies. They engage in immorality because they deny authority. They engage in morality. They do what they want to. It's a statement in the book of Judges. Everyone did what they saw was right in their own eyes. And guys, that's the culture we're walking into. Everyone's going to do what they think is right in their own eyes. They reject authority. Who are you to say that I can't do that? Who are you to tell me no? This is these, these descriptions of people who are giving a false testimony, a false witness. They blaspheme the glorious ones. Now, this is actually a challenging statement. Because you actually start to find in here, and I don't know exactly what was going on. I can give you a sense of what was going on. I don't find a lot of people blaspheming angels anymore. But apparently this was happening in Jude's time, and it was a problem. I've never blasphemed an angel to my knowledge. I don't know that I know anyone who's blasphemed an angel. But this is clearly something they do. They blaspheme the glorious ones. And he illustrates it in verse 9. When the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was displayed was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. And, and so what you find in this, and this is a little subsection that's taken from the, the book of the Assumption of Moses. Again, something we all read in our free time. I guess the point of that and the blaspheming of, of angels and of Michael is to understand, to take Michael back to verse one and to tell you that Michael who, I, albeit is highly regarded in the scriptures, Michael, who's kind of considered to be the chief of all the angels, Michael did not rebuke Satan on his own authority. He wasn't acting on his own. He didn't say, I've got the strength and power to do this. He said, the Lord. Michael saw that his own authority, his own identity was Jesus. So when Michael had to go against Satan, Michael's only rebuke was, man, the Lord rebuke you. Why? Because that was his authority and that was his identity. It, it, it all comes back together. And so when Jude is trying to paint a picture of these people who are giving false witnesses, he's giving you a picture of, of people whose identity is themselves, people whose authority is themselves, people whose truth is their feelings, people whose actions are whatever they want to do, their flesh. And church, we got to ask questions. Like, is that us? Is that us? Is that me? Are we guilty of these things? Are we finding ourselves our own authority? Are, are we doing whatever our flesh desires and just calling it fine? Are we pursuing the delights of our, our fingers and our hands, just feeding our flesh? Are we rejecting authority? That's the warning of this passage. And when he gets, when he moves on, he says, these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. 
and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand distinctively. These people, these false witnesses, blaspheme all that they don't understand. They mock God. They are destroyed by all that they understand instinctively. That they're following their flesh, they're pursuing these things, and it's destroying them. So what does Jude say? Woe to them. Woe to them. Woes in Scripture are a big deal. You do not want to be woed. You do not want to walk into the presence of the Almighty Father and be woed. I assure you, you need to avoid woes. In Scripture, when it says woe, like circle everything around it and don't do it. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the rebellion of Gain to Balaam's heir and perished in Korah's rebellion. And if you were an Israelite, you would understand everything that that meant. So I'll tell you. Cain's way. Cain's way, according to Jewish tradition, is the way of pride. It's putting yourself first. It's putting your needs first. It's why Cain's sacrifice was not acceptable and Abel's was. Because Abel did it the way God required. Cain did what he wanted to and expected God to receive it. That was Cain's way. These woers, these false testifiers are doing it their way. They're putting their pride in the way. They're walking in the way of Cain. They've abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's heir. And Balaam's heir is found in Numbers 31. It's a compromise. It's the idea, really, you find in Numbers 31, it's this idea that you can sin with impunity, that you can continue on in a course of sin and God won't even notice. That you can continue on sin, 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 sin. And church, there's a huge difference between struggling with sin and living in it. Guys, we're, we're all struggling in sin. Don't hear tremendous judgment from this pulpit. I'm worse than all of you. I guarantee it. I could line up people to testify me, but we won't because I'd lose my job. <laughs> this is not a place of judgment. We're just saying there's a difference between struggling with sin and living in it. Struggling means you, you fight it. It's this weird thing. You wage war against it. You do everything in your power to not give in to it. Rather than, oh, let's do it again. Oh, let's do it again. Oh, it's okay, I'll do it again. That's living in sin. And that's what this is defining against. They abandoned themselves for the sake of gain. They thought they were gaining by pursuing sin with impunity. And they perished in Korah's rebellion. Korah rebelled against Moses and Aaron and God in number 16. This is an important note. Just... Um, In this time, Jude is writing, and he's actually writing what's called a polemic. A polemic is a, it's a theological statement against something else, and he's, he's polemicizing the Gnostics, called the Orphites, who considered Cain, Balaam, and Korah as the great heroes of the Old Testament. So he's making an attack against Gnosticism. They go, if you wondered why those three are put together, that's why. He, more or less, he's saying, don't be rebellious. They these people perished in, in Korah's rebellion. People who stood up against Moses, Aaron, and God. And just again, if you've got to get in a fight with somebody, you're going to figure out if I'm on Moses, Aaron, and God's side. I'd pick that one. And, and that's where these people are against. They're opposing Moses, Aaron, and God. So it goes into verse 12. 
with some other illustrations. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts. Judas articulating that these people are walking amongst us. A love feast, you know, at first glance, you're going to think this is a pagan ritual. A love feast actually was a, an early church ceremony. A, a love feast was the early church would get together. It was, it was almost like a special meal that was built around communion. That we would get everyone together. Everyone, our whole body would come together and we'd, we'd join in a great meal together of fellowship and we'd enjoy the Lord's Supper together. It was, it was totally based on that. It was the, a communal meal together based on our unity in Christ. There are hidden reefs at your love feasts. They're walking amongst us. They're coming to our most intimate gatherings. They feast with you without fear. They're shepherds feeding themselves they're waterless clouds, swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead and uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. That's woe. That's woe. Judah's articulating that there's false testimony in us and among us. And he's woeing us. Get rid of it. Put it away. It was about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Jude is pretty strongly articulating the reality of judgment. He's, he's strongly articulating the reality of judgments of believers. And he's pretty strongly articulating the reality of judgment against unbelievers. And as we, we walk through this passage and you're going, man, Killer Lane, whoo, thanks, Mother's Day. That was a doozy. We're all going to have a happy feast later. We need to understand that, that love, the best way for us to love you is to give you a pre presentation of who God is. And as Judah's articulating what it looks like to contend for the gospel, the first part's easy. It makes you feel great. Man, it's all about Jesus. And we all go, Jesus, yeah, that's me. The second part, to contend for the gospel. You're like, oh, maybe I can do that. And you get to the third part, and you're like going, guys, judgment is at stake. You're going to be held accountable. And we don't like it when the church tells us that, because we're like, what? That guy's judging me. Don't do that. But that's clearly what the Scripture testifies to. But the other thing the Scriptures clearly testify to is that the world we're engaging is going to be judged also. And that's rough. That's hard. That's challenging. Because now when you go into Starbucks and the lady doesn't get your macchiato on time, you don't get to just yell at her because she's lazy. Because at some point you gotta understand this woman has a soul and she's a being and she needs to see a representation of Jesus Christ before her. 
And the next time your waiter dumps your plate right before it gets to you and you're in a hurry, you don't get to ream this guy because he's late and he's clumsy. You got to understand this man has a soul and he needs to see a representation of Jesus Christ. He needs to see a demonstration and he needs to hear a a proclamation of it. And the next time you walk into the grocery store and the guy in front of you has 74 items in the 10 item lane and you're cursing him under your mouth, what an idiot. You have no idea what's going on in that guy's life. And you need to appreciate that he has a soul. And then he needs to see a demonstration and a proclamation of Jesus Christ. And who's going to do that? Is it us? Yes! Yeah, if you're going to live, if you're going to contend for the gospel, you have to identify yourself in Jesus Christ. You have to find your identity, your authority in Jesus Christ. And you've got to appreciate that contending is going to be hard. It's going to require a lot of work. It's going to be very self-sacrificial. You're going to get the tar kicked out of you sometimes. You're going to live out passages that say, outwardly I'm being wasted away, yet inwardly I'm being renewed every day. That's going to be your reality. Because you're going to have to give yourself away to the world. It's not an easy challenge to love people all the time. You can't do it on your own. You're going to need Jesus. We're going to have to. We have to demonstrate and proclaim the gospel in all times. Why? Because there's a reality of judgment. Man, I wish it weren't true also so we could all just have fun all the time. But we've got to present God as he presents himself. There's a reality of it. So let's not be ignorant of it. Let's not pretend it's not there. I say, man, there's too much at stake. There's too much at stake for me to live my life selfishly. There's too much at stake for me to just continue sinning on with impunity. There's too much at stake for me to just do whatever I want all the time. There's too much at stake. I need to contend for the gospel. Verse 16, these are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Jude makes it really clear that there's a false testimony, that there are false witnesses, and there are false teachers. And as we said last week, it's easy when we consider false teachers to make it about somebody else. When we make it about a false witness, we understand the fact that our life bears witness to something. And we're really, really well suited to ask the question, what is my life testifying about? And when struggling with that question, we really need to consider the fact that there is a reality of judgment. That this world needs us to contend. There are people that you will interact with this afternoon who will need to see the gospel demonstrated and proclaimed. There are people that you'll see tonight that you're going to have to demonstrate and proclaim the gospel to. There's somebody tomorrow morning at work who's going to irritate the junk out of you that you're going to have to demonstrate and proclaim the gospel to. There's somebody you work with on a weekly basis that frustrates you that you're going... We don't just demonstrate and proclaim the gospel to people we like. 
Those are the easy people. The challenge is to demonstrate and proclaim the gospel to everyone the Lord puts before us and to walk in a way, understanding who we are in Christ so that our identity is in him. We don't lose anything because we're constantly being filled up by him. And that's the challenge of this book of Jude. Next week, we're going to walk through what does it look like to contend? What are the steps that Jude puts out for us to really contend for the gospel? You can go ahead and read about it if you want. You could study ahead. It would be great if you did. Let me pray for us. Father, we love you so much. And just like a good daddy, you don't just love us, but you hold us accountable too. You have a love for us far deeper than the love of any parent. And yet you have a discipline that's so real. Father, we don't want to just talk about judgment and hell because we want to scare people. It's not an intimidation tactic. It's not a fear tactic. It's just a truth tactic. It's got to how you presented yourself. There's an urgency to the gospel that we need to live with. Father, I pray that you would make us a church, that you'd make all of us as a church, a body that declares and demonstrates and proclaims who you are to a world that needs to see a true witness of your church and of your heart and of your character so that they could respond to you for who you are and not respond to you for our false testimonies. Father, we repent for the times we blow it and we're thankful for the blood of Jesus that covers our sin and make us better and stronger contenders. In Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.